Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters-in-Law with Joyce Vance, Barb McQuaid, and me, Jill Wine-Banks. Kim is away this week, but we already miss her and can't wait to have her back. You might have seen that we tweeted some photos of us wearing our pale blue women's t-shirt, which is, of course, available at politicon.com merch. Get yours now. We love them. I'm wearing mine today, and if the... Oh, good. Me too. And Joyce is in Washington, so she's probably too fancy for us. I'm not wearing mine, but I do love it. (laughs) Today, we'll be doing a perjury explainer and discussing mounting evidence coming out of the January 6th investigation in books and in the news. And then we'll talk about the praying football coach whose case was argued at the Supreme Court this week. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. Before we begin our serious issues, I want to talk about all of you and what you would call your memoir. I have to defend the title of mine, which is The Watergate Girl. And people often ask, how could you write a book with the word girl? And it's really easy to understand because it was suggested by the publisher who has the final say on what a book's title is. And when I said, then you're not publishing my book because I won't use girl. And he said, the editor said to me, well, what captures the era better than the word girl? Mm -hmm. And man, he had me at that because it really is true. The 70s, I was called a girl. And that's what it was. Mm -hmm. There were still ads that said help wanted male, help wanted female. So I love that title. But I have a title for a second book that I'm thinking of writing. And... It's about Jill's pins, and it's called Broaching the Truth. The trumpet. Love it. It's the Trump administration through Jill's pins. So maybe I'll get to work on that. So, so Barb, what would you call your memoir? Uh, You know, when I I was a little bit younger, my kids were small. I always said that if I were to ever write a memoir, it would be entitled, Here, Mom, Hold This. Because that's how I, you know, heard most most days of my life is the, the thing I heard most frequently. You know, I could go out and work as U.S. attorney, prosecute public corruption cases, whatever. But most frequently, the phrase I heard was, "Here, mom, hold this." Um, but more lately, I think that uh, this era of my life would be called. Um, has anyone seen my phone? Because I say that many times a day. You know, <laughs> has anyone seen my phone? Colon uh, the memoir of an absent-minded professor. I think it would be something like that. I love that. Hey, Barb, I had to actually get an Apple Hub. It's like this HomePod thing, and it's sort of expensive, and the only thing I use it for is to say, hey, Siri, can you find my phone? <laughs> and wherever the phone is in the house, she'll make it, you know, oh, play that good. little tone, yeah. and she'll she'll say, your phone is nearby. Hang on a second, Joyce. And I can literally hear my husband rolling his eyes, but it saves me so many times. Does she ever get frustrated with you, like when it's the third or fourth time that day? Hey, it's in the kitchen yet, don't. Oh my. <laughs> you guys, did you hear that? When we said that, Siri on my phone just literally said, hmm, I don't have an answer for that. Is there something else I can help with? She's so helpful. She never gets the only reason with for me. a landline phone is so that you can find your cell phone. Is there something else I can help with? What about you, Joyce? Okay, what's your, what's your memoir title? But no, I think my title would have to be um, Never Enough Chickens which is sort of a good metaphor for the way we live. You know, we sort of are always doing something new, whether it's planting new stuff or 
acquiring new chickens because exciting news in our house, as long as my chickens stay on their eggs, we might have baby chicks early next week. We need to see pictures. I can't wait. I'll send y'all pictures. Well, those are going to be books I want to read for sure. The January 6th committee has been working at a fast pace. We're hearing more and more about their work. New revelations keep coming to light. And meantime, there are some signs that DOJ's investigations are looking higher up the food chain than the Proud Boy and Oath Keeper cases that are currently in progress. But no indictments yet. So what does it all mean? The the big question is whether we'll see accountability for these efforts to subvert the election that culminated in an insurrection. So let's talk first about the committee's hearings, which we've now seen a schedule for. We've learned that there will be eight, all televised during June, starting on the 9th. Jill, what do you think about this proposed approach? You tweeted, U.S. Capitol riot January 6th committee to hold public hearings in June, properly planned. They will exceed the drama and impact of the Watergate hearings. I can't wait to watch you. So you ask this question and and you look at these hearings, I suspect, through the lens of your Watergate experience. Do you think that they can come up with a strategy that will catch the public's attention and and will that change anything? Yes and no. (laughs) Yes, I think they can come up with a great strategy and with the available techniques that they have that we didn't uh, in terms of the kind of graphics and videos that they can use and the way they can play audio that we didn't have, it will be very dramatic to hear the words of the actual participants in this insurrection. But will it change anything? Probably not, because the people who need to have their minds uh, inundated with facts are not going to be listening. They'll be listening to Fox News, which will be uh, putting forth totally fake information. They will listen to Donald Trump interpreting things in a way that has no relationship to reality. But there is a chance that there will be those people in the middle, some more um, middle-of-the-road Republicans, some independents, and that they will be the ones who are impacted by it. Also, possibly it can attract the youth vote, which I am now thinking is really important, and they are becoming more and more disengaged. So if we can attract independents and young voters and some Republicans, then it will make a difference. And in any event, for history, it's very, very important. It made a huge impact during Watergate. It changed people's perspective of whether the president was a crook. He said, I'm not a crook. And people went, oh, yes, you are. And I don't know that it'll be as dramatic as that, but it is so worth doing. It is the right answer. And I just want to add, I think that the Mueller investigation failed in part because they did not put forward a compelling visual narrative. They issued a very long uh, report, which all of us read, but people around the world did not read. Watching this could be a difference. So I think it's really important. 
You know, I think that's a fair criticism of the Mueller report. I mean, for us, it's essentially our job to watch or to read these sorts of things. A lot of people have lives to live and families to take care of, and they need to really, um, I, I think it's the responsibility of our legislators to deliver the facts to them in a method that makes it easy for them to consume. Uh, I'm sure you guys saw the reporting this morning. CNN has gotten its hands on 82 text message exchanges between Mark Meadows, the, the Trump White House chief of staff, the last one, and Sean Hannity at Fox News. And Hannity is essentially asking the White House to tell him what he should be reporting on in his shows. It's my head just sort of exploded. And so, Jill, I agree with your point that Fox News may not really present this. Given all of these, you know, problematic issues, Barb, what's your view of how these hearings will play and and what the committee needs to do? Well, I think that people tend to look at this solely as a political opportunity. Uh, You know, how will it affect the midterms and can they, you know, get the people uh, spun up in time for the midterms? I, you know, I I look at it from a longer view than that. I think um, regardless of whether it has any impact on the midterm elections, it's just really important to understand what happened because our nation was under attack. And so I think of this the way I think of the 9-11 Commission and the way they did their work. They were trying to figure out how is it that we had this attack. And they looked at it from lots of different perspectives, the intelligence community, border security, um, the security of, of documents, identification documents, and all of those kinds of things. And then at the end of it, they looked for gaps in the law and found ways to change the law to prevent some of these things from happening again. And I think that's the mission here. So I'm less concerned about a dramatic moment when we read Marjorie Taylor Greene's emails or text message or something and watch laugh at she's you know she's misspelled martial law or something. You know that's all very amusing for the uh, political classes, I think. But I think we really need to determine how how on earth could this have happened? We came really close um, to a, a coup, and how do we make sure this doesn't happen again? I also think there's value in finding facts that can be shared with the Justice Department, who no doubt is also investigating this from a criminal perspective, very different mission from what the committee's mission is, but to the extent they elicit useful testimony, and they've already talked to 900 witnesses, some of which has been very, very enlightening, that they can share that with the Justice Department so that they don't need to spin their wheels and duplicate efforts. So I think for those reasons, I'm looking for you know substantive things that can help understand where the weaknesses are in our election laws and our information security and our voting security that could have allowed them to get this close to overthrowing an election. Barb, I think you mentioned something that's really, really important, which is the role of Congress, and that is to fill the gaps that are going to be discovered in our laws, to ask, why did we have this happen? How could it happen? And could it happen again? And what laws need to be amended so that it doesn't. Clearly, the Electoral College Act needs some help. There are many other areas where laws need to be put in place to make sure that we don't lose the fundamental principles of our democracy. Yeah, I really agree with that. You know, times change, technology advances, and our laws need to be refined to protect our elections. So I hope that Congress will you know, look at um, some gaps in the law, Jill, you point to the Electoral College Act that really need to be updated to protect our elections. 
which should be bipartisan work. Everyone should want to make our elections fair and secure. And maybe while they're at it, the Democrats can finally get the Restored Voting Rights Act across the finish line. Um, Ha, 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 right? Because there's been no success in that so far, which is, uh, I think, one of the reasons that we're where we are. But be that as it may, Jill, we, we now have news from committee chairman Benny Thompson that he's going to ask House GOP leader Kevin McCarthy, Representatives Perry and Jordan, to cooperate in the investigation. And, and there's even more reporting that they're considering sending letters requesting testimony to Marjorie Taylor Greene, to Lauren Boebert, to Mo Brooks, and to Andy Biggs. So these new letters are being discussed internally as a final chance for these folks to cooperate voluntarily before the select committee considers ways to compel their assistance. Do you think the committee should issue subpoenas? And do you think that they'll be enforceable if they do? Yes, I think they should issue subpoenas if the letters do not work. I think that every citizen in America has an obligation to cooperate in this investigation of something that was clearly terrible, which even those people whose names you've mentioned, even the most uh, right wing of the Republican supporters of Donald Trump, recognize in reality the danger that we were in and how close we came to losing our democracy, because that's what they said initially before they backed off it. And so... They know that there's a real problem and they should be willing to share very relevant information with Congress so that it can take whatever steps it needs to take. Will the subpoenas be enforced? Well, based on what's happening with uh, the currently pending contempt recommendation to justice about Mark Meadows, I don't know. It's taking them an awfully long time. And while there may be reasons for this delay. And I think even you, Joyce, are moving toward the feeling that the time has come for Department of Justice to act, that there's low-hanging fruit, that there's evidence apparent to every person who's read the news over the last few years that needs to be dealt with. There is more, there is no doubt, and you can investigate this forever, but at some point it's time to say enough is sufficient and we're going to act on it. And so I hope that they will. I hope they'll issue subpoenas. I don't see any special protection for members of Congress. They have uh, a privilege based on anything they say on the floor of the House in connection with their job. But when they're acting in a campaign mode or outside their job, they're just like any other citizen and they shouldn't get a break. I think the president can be subpoenaed. I think I thought back in Watergate and still think a sitting president can be indicted for crimes. And certainly a former president can be indicted, but and also subpoenaed. Yeah, you know, I agree with you. And just to be clear, if I was the sitting attorney general of the United States, I think I might have had a more aggressive approach towards this entire issue uh, from day one when I stepped in. I think that there are multiple legitimate approaches. I understand the institutionalist view that's respectful, but I have for a long time thought it was past time to go ahead and enforce these subpoenas. This is the only way of ensuring that congressional oversight remains rich and full and that we have a functioning three-party or or rather a a functioning three branches of government system um, with oversight that actually works to hold the executive accountable. So no argument from me. I would have frankly 
enforce the Meadows subpoena from the get-go, although Barb has made the point that DOJ could possibly be treating him as a witness in other cases or maybe as a defendant in other cases. But uh, I think it's overdue. Um, But Barb, our friend uh, Dan Goldman tweeted, former prosecutor in the Southern District of New York, Dan tweeted, One benefit of the leak of Meadows text messages is that it ensures DOJ gets access to them without having to overtly request them. DOJ cannot avoid looking at them as part of the coup investigation. If that was the purpose of the leak, it's very clever. So how about it? Do you agree with Dan? Yeah, super interesting. I saw that tweet when it came out. And, you know, Dan has been not only a federal prosecutor, but he has also served as counsel to the committee that uh, conducted Donald Trump's first impeachment. So he knows how these committees work. And so if he has that insight, he he probably knows more than I do um, about whether that was the purpose. I don't know that that means it will be received that way. I mean, Joyce, you know how these things work. It isn't like DOJ is wondering what to do with this and they're befuddled and they're lazy and they're slow. And gee, if only we had a little more information, we might decide what to do with Mark Meadows. I think they're, they're straight. You know, I, I have faith in them. And maybe that is uh, naive. Maybe that is uh, being blindly loyal to an organization I worked for. But number one on Mark Meadows, I think that they haven't just not gotten around to charging him yet. I think there's a strategy behind it. Either they're considering him more as a target or subject of bigger charges like conspiracy to defraud the United States or seditious conspiracy or uh, obstruction of an official proceeding. Or, you know, he filed his own civil lawsuit in December. And part of the principles of federal prosecution say that you should bring criminal charges if you believe you can obtain and sustain a conviction and there is no alternative remedy available. With that civil lawsuit pending, we saw the committee file a motion for summary judgment just about a week ago. It seems likely that there will be a decision in a civil case where they'll get an order compelling Meadows to uh, to testify and to comply with the subpoena. So, And it seems to me like that's going to be faster and cleaner than going through a whole trial and then an appeal if they really want to use Meadows as a witness and not just make an example of him, as I think they did with Steve Bannon then I think this other route might actually be a better strategy. So I know it's frustrating to see them as this, you know, a chamber of of silence where nothing comes out. We don't know what they're doing. But, um, you know, as Merrick Garland has emphasized, there are norms at DOJ. You don't announce pending investigations. And it's more important to adhere to those norms during moments of crisis than at any other time. And so I think even with regard to, I know, Jill, you have agitated that you're antsy. Why aren't they doing anything? I'm certain they're doing tons. Like, I think they're probably working around the clock 24-7, but I don't see a, a charge coming out like this year. I think if it comes out, it'll be well into next year. It just takes so long. I look at that um, that case in Michigan where Gretchen Whitmer's uh, kidnapper plotters, allegedly, um, were either too acquitted or too uh, subject to a hung jury. And man, that was a pretty clean, tight case. But it just, I think, shows you the enormous burden of proof when you're trying to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, and you've got to prove it unanimously to 12 jurors. There are going to be jurors in the batch who are Trump supporters or who are skeptical of government in one way or another. And so it's got to be airtight. It's got to be an airtight legal theory, and you've got to have airtight facts. And I think there just hasn't been time for them to completely scour all of these facts yet, because, of course, you have to not only have enough to run with, you have to... Um, disprove the negative, all of the other possible innocent explanations that the defense might come up with. And that takes time. So 
I remain optimistic that they get it, that they're working toward investigating and holding accountable all of these people. And I think one of the things that we can do or I can try to do is just to help the public understand why it takes so long and try to manage expectations. Like it's not coming before the midterms. You know, it's such a good point. I know people are so frustrated, but having done, like you, Barb, a number of these public corruption investigations, they move slowly, not because anybody is being negligent, but because, for instance, um, convincing witnesses to cooperate with you, it's a slow process. And then getting them in there to cooperate and, and gathering the evidence and putting it together and figuring out what else you need, even if you're diligently working on a case 24-7, that sometimes takes years to come together. There is nothing worse than shooting at the king and missing. I agree with your conclusion that you can't shoot and miss, but there are cases that aren't the whole case. You can add indictments, you can add counts. There are some things that have happened that are as clear as Mark Meadows having been in contempt, as Steve Bannon having been in contempt. And Those cases should be brought right away while more is developed. In Watergate, we got some of the most incriminating evidence in response to a trial subpoena, which was right after the indictment. We indicted in less than a year after our appointment. We were appointed in May. By the next March, we had indicted. And then we developed additional evidence in support of the indictment Um, and went to the Supreme Court. We did a lot of stuff in between indictment and trial. But I just don't think you have to wait for the perfect case. And you're right. There could be one trumper on the jury that will lead to a hung jury. That is absolutely going to be a risk no matter what. But I also want to point to, in the Manafort case, there was a trumper on the jury who said, I voted to convict on every single count because as a juror, I was sworn to listen to the evidence and decide on the evidence. And the evidence was clear that he was guilty. I believe in Donald Trump and I believe all this other stuff that he says, but in court, I had to go as a juror. And I believe jurors take their their oath seriously. And so I just think that there are cases that can and should be brought sooner rather than later. And that our democracy is on the balance here and needs to see some action so that people don't give up hope. Young people particularly are distraught over this, but so are my generation. We're very upset about the lack of action. Barb, do you think that there's a middle ground here? Can DOJ do anything while it's investigating to try to help the public have confidence in its integrity? In other words, not to promise that there will be indictments, But for instance, for Merrick Garland to go out and talk about the process that DOJ uses more, not necessarily in the context of the January 6th investigation, but in a way that helps the public understand why these delays happen, why DOJ can't do more to openly talk about cases. I feel like some conversation about process, some civic education about process would go a long way here. Am I right or am I wrong? Yeah, I think you're right about that. Now, he did give that speech on January 5th, which I think was excellent. He talked about a commitment to holding accountable everybody, anybody at any level 
whether they were at the Capitol or not, who was responsible for this assault on our democracy, words to that effect. And then he did in that um, speech talk about how they start with cases that are right in front of them and they use it to work their way up and build larger cases. But um, I think the public has such a short memory that it would be useful for him to get out there and talk again. And also, Joyce, you've pointed out that his remarks were really very focused on January 6th as that date, uh, creating, I think, at least some uncertainty, confusion as to whether he was talking about only the attack or the entire bigger picture of the um, effort to overthrow the election. And so I, I think you could talk about that without identifying individual suspects. And so I think it might be more assuring to the public to talk about that and to talk about process and to explain why, why it takes so long. I, I can remember doing a lot of that. When I was serving as U.S. attorney, it took us about five years to charge our former mayor with a massive public corruption um, indictment. And um, you know, it, there was a lot that was in the public domain about that case because he had had a related state case. And so there were bits coming out that there was a federal investigation. And you know, we talked all the time about uh, why it's so important to take our time and to do cases properly and to be patient. And um, I think that that was, um, that was well served. It just helped, I think, make sure people knew that it isn't because you didn't care or you're not working very hard that, uh, you know, that idea that to assure the public, the um, DOJ policy on neither confirming nor, nor denying the existence of an investigation does has have an exception when necessary to assure the public. And so I think in very broad terms, he could be doing a little more maybe to talk about the ways in which um, the Justice Department is on the job. Yeah, I think that's a great point. We, we could do a lot to help the public understand the time it takes. I always remember, like your mayor case, we did the entire county commission in Jefferson County, Alabama's biggest county, and it took a long time to go all the way up and get to all of them. And I remember we were indicting the last one about the time I was arguing the first case on appeal in front of the 11th Circuit. And one of the judges on the panel looked up at me as I finished my argument and said, well, Miss Vance, before this is over, you'll be able to have a full quorum meeting of the Jefferson County Commission in federal prison. <laughs> and it literally had taken that long for everything to come together. But I think the public at the end appreciates the work. Like you and Jill, the point y'all have made is the question is whether there's sufficient confidence there while the work is ongoing for the public to have a reasonable basis for trusting DOJ and saying, okay, Merrick Garland, you know, we'll, we'll spot you the time that you need. The problem is coming out of the Trump era, people just don't have that level of confidence. So I do think DOJ is gonna have to find a way to do more. There's a lot of reaction from people saying, I'll believe it when there are indictments. And there's a general reaction now that no matter what, and that was the reaction to the January 5th speech that Merrick Garland gave, which we all liked, but it really isn't a substitute for action. And I don't think it's satisfied the public interest in seeing somebody held accountable for the serious threats to our democracy. Yeah, agree. Let's make a pact that on the morning that we wake up to find that DOJ has handed down indictments, no matter where the sisters are, we'll all fly to some place together and, and uh, share some champagne to celebrate. I would love that. <laughs> Deal. Deal. 
Every so often, we like to pick a legal concept that's in the news and give you the background on what it's all about, the things we take for granted, but that are not all that obvious except to lawyers. This week, we want to talk about perjury. Barb, perjury is a term used regularly in news reports, and it's thrown about casually in daily conversations about Trump and his supporters, and no doubt by MAGA about anyone who says Trump lost the 2020 election. So what does perjury really mean in terms of a criminally prosecutable case? Yeah, that's such a great question, Jill, because I think people throw around perjury the same way they throw around treason, right? They, that this is treasonous. This is, this sh- he should be charged with treason, which of course has some really specific elements. Treason doesn't apply unless we're at war. Um, it, it's aid and comfort to the enemy. And so often people, I think, make it, make us assume it's synonymous with disloyalty to the United States, which it's not. And same with perjury. I think sometimes people think anytime someone lies, they have committed the crime of perjury. But in fact, um, there are a number of different statutes that cover lies. And I think Joyce is going to get into the details of the various elements of each of those things. But depending on where you are, whether you're under oath or whether you're talking to a federal agent, um, one of the things it really requires is that a person then and there knew that they made a statement that was false. And so it's not enough that they're kind of shooting from the hip, that they're being kind of reckless. Uh, It has to be a specific statement that you can say, here's what you said. And at the time, you knew that that statement was false. And so I've charged uh, variations on these, false statements or perjury. It's hard to charge, frankly, because you have to be able to identify the precise language. Oftentimes, that's from a transcript. If somebody was testifying and their words were transcribed, and you would say in the indictment, you know, the person uh, committed perjury when they stated, and then you quote the language, when the person then and there knew that that statement was false. And then you have to go about and prove that they knew that that statement was false at that time. Um, When it comes to the false statements charge, you also have to show that it was material. It has to be an important fact. It can't just be, um, uh, you know, my favorite flavor of ice cream is vanilla and I lied when I said it was chocolate. Nobody cares about that. It has to be something that matters and it's important to the matter at hand. Um, And so I think that uh, sometimes when people are very casual in tossing off this idea of perjury or false statements, um, that's not enough. It's not enough to lie on TV or to lie in a text message uh, or to lie to political supporters. Um, It has to be either in an official court proceeding or under oath or to a federal agency in a matter within the jurisdiction of that agency. And and so, Joyce, just to make it even clearer, let's talk about the specific statutes that govern federal perjury. Um, We're not going to get into any of the state laws, but under federal law, there are several things that could apply to a false statement. One is a false statement violation under 1001, but there's also perjury under 1621 and 1623 of all of Title 18, which is our criminal code. Uh, Do you want to just sort of talk about some of the elements of those and why you would use one versus the other? Sure. And I think the elements of the perjury charges, 1621 and 1623, really illustrate the point Barb is making, which is that you've got to have a precise statement that the witness makes under oath that turns out to be a lie. Technically, the four elements of both of these perjury charges are that the declarant, the person who makes the statement, so it's usually a witness in the grand jury or at trial, that that declarant took an oath to testify truthfully. No oath, no perjury charge. 
You have to testify that they willfully made a false statement that was contrary to the oath. In other words, they lied while they were testifying. You have to show that the person who made the statement believed that it was untrue at the time that they made it. And of course, that the statement was related to a material fact. So the most important, and I shouldn't say the most important, these elements all have to be there. But what what makes it so relatively rare to bring a perjury charge because they're very difficult is that the statement has to be literally false and made with the intent to deceive or to mislead. The Marjorie Taylor Greene hearing is a really good example of this because the uh, private lawyers in that case weren't lawyers who were used to nailing down a witness who was lying in order to make the perjury charge. She would make these statements that were generalized and, and perhaps misleading or false, I don't remember, without any effort to show that they were misleading. For instance, as a prosecutor, if you've got a witness who's repeatedly saying that they don't remember, you might want to start pushing on that and and talking with them about things that they did remember from that point in time and getting them to the point where they have to concede that it's embarrassing and, and very unlikely to be true that they remember one text and not others, and then continue to push on that until you have a very precise sort of a lie that you can charge. That's why you don't see particularly congressional hearings resulting in perjury charges very often at all. Something I really like in 1623, and Barb, I bet you use this provision um, as well, is that it goes a little bit uh, in, in addition, and it makes it clear that you can be charged if you make two declarations, both under oath, and they're inconsistent to the degree that one of them is necessarily false. You don't have to prove which one is false, but if you've got two conflicting under oath statements, then you are in a setting where you can go ahead and bring a perjury charge. Of course, 1001 is much more, I think of it a little bit as a catch-all. This is for false statements made to federal agents, made to the government. They don't necessarily have to be under oath, although increasingly there's a trend in some courts to, um, I think this is a very specific requirement now, that you have to be advised that making a false statement can be a lie or that you're signing a form under penalty of perjury, but no oath requirement. So 1001 can be used for everything um, from a from a signature on a document that contains false information in something like a Sarbanes-Oxley corporate filing that goes to the government, all the way on to the FBI is in your office interviewing you, and they say, you know, did you rob the bank? Or maybe they say, did your office next door neighbor rob the bank? And you say, well, no, he was sitting in his office all day. And you know that that statement is false. That's a material false statement that could be charged under 1001. So that's sort of a lay of the land here in a statutory sense. And can I jump in with one thing that's my favorite my favorite aspect of of um, these perjury false statement things? You know, you can recant. Um, that's right. There is an opportunity. It's one of the few statutes where you can kind of undo it. And so we used to. I, I'm sure you did too, Joyce. This is DOJ policy. Yep. Maybe you had this experience, Jill, in the grand jury when you've got a witness in a hostile witness. You know, somebody's not a government agent or something who is uh, before they testify. You you read them their rights essentially Miranda rights. But the in addition, you say. Um, for perjury and false statements, you know, you can be charged with a crime if you lie here. And then, you know, they, they give their whole testimony. Maybe they're in there an hour. They're answering questions. And at the end, you say, OK, now that you've testified, um, if there's anything that you said that was wrong, uh, you could be charged with perjury or false statements. You know, if, you, if you knowingly made a false statement, is there anything you would like to correct?
correct at this time. And, you know, most of the time they'd say, nope, I, I you know, testified to the best of my ability. I'm, I'm all set. Thank you. Um, every once in a while, they'd say, could I have a moment to go consult with my lawyer who must wait in the hallway? And they'd slip out for a minute and, you know, they'd be gone for a second. You know, you sort of like play with your pencil or something. And then they'd come back in and they'd say, um, yeah, you know, um, remember when I answered that one question about, you know, whether I had the gun in my possession? Yes, I remember. That. Um, and I said, I didn't have the gun in my possession. Yes. Actually, I, I did have the gun in my I just, I made a mistake. I made a mistake. My lawyer I refreshed my memory and now I realize I made a mistake. So I just want to clarify that. Like, okay, thanks. Um, so there is an opportunity to clarify and correct. We would have that um, experience on occasion, but my favorite one in a public corruption case was a witness who was outraged that that language was used with him and you know, went to the judge to say that the prosecutor had tried to browbeat him for giving him this warning. And fortunately, the judge wasn't having any of it. But that was a very unusual take by a defendant on something that's meant to, frankly, protect the defendant from prosecution for perjury. Well, let's be honest, it may protect them, but it also is intended to encourage revelations that you're entitled to. Uh, it is a way to bring out the truth. Um, and I want to talk about one of my favorite perjury cases, which is a Supreme Court case called Branston. And the reason it's my favorite is because it says you can deliberately mislead in your answer as long as it's literally true. So that if I ask you a question about what color was the car that you saw and you say, well, I was in a blue car, that's completely immaterial to the question I ask. And it may be literally true, even though it's intended to divert and mislead. And so you can deliberately mislead if you're clever enough. And that seems to me a big problem when you have white collar criminals or public officials who are corrupt. Do either of you have a favorite perjury case or uh, are, are the stories you just told some of your favorites? Um I do have a favorite perjury case, but it's a case where we didn't charge perjury. And it, I think, maybe illustrates how important it is to have perjury hanging over a witness's head. I was prosecuting a firebombing case. This was a firebombing of a witness in a very serious drug kingpin case that resulted in the imposition of the death penalty on a drug kingpin. It was the first time the death penalty was used um, after it was restored in the federal system. And so I had this sort of related obstruction case, and we had two witnesses in, or two defendants, potential defendants involved in the firebombing, who firebombed the witness's house and then drive away. And one of those potential defendants is legally blind, so we know he's not the driver of the car. And we have a couple of witnesses, and one of them is in the grand jury, and he adamantly insists that the guy who had sight was not the driver of the getaway car. And so I go through this process that Barb has described and, you know, tell him that we're going to prosecute him for perjury if he doesn't tell the truth. Um, and he asks to speak with his lawyer. And the lawyer comes to me with a really bemused look on his face and says, you know, listen, the blind guy drove the getaway car. <laughs> and I said, no, no, he really didn't. And the lawyer's like, no, put him back on, on the witness stand and he's going to explain and he's going to tell you the truth. He, he wants a deal. He wants to cooperate. He, you know, he wants to be a witness, not a defendant. Um, and so the testimony that we then had available to us in court when the case went to trial 
was that in fact the the blind guy, the legally blind guy, is the driver of the getaway car with the other guy who needed both hands free to throw the Molotov cocktail that they used to firebomb the house. He's saying, "Go a little bit to the left. Go to the right. Now go Come straight." On. And we <laughs> we end up because we have this information um, getting testimony from a couple of different witnesses. There were multiple cars there who who see it happen and drive away. The greatest thing in that case, though, was how law enforcement ultimately found the defendants. One of their tires was literally down to the metal, and there was just like a line in the road from where the firebombing occurred to where these two ended up driving to and following the firebombing. The sheriffs in that county just sort of followed the rut in the road and fingered their two guys. So it was uh, an interesting case for many reasons, but it reminds you of the importance um, as a federal prosecutor of being open to what is unlikely sometimes being the truth. And we were lucky, frankly, that the uh, witness in that case insisted on telling the truth, even when I was a little bit disbelieving. And ultimately, we did get to the right result in that case. Yeah, I don't have a good war story of my own to compare with that one, Joyce. That's awesome. But, you know, the most famous um, case of false statements, I think, that I often point to is is the case of Martha Stewart, because I think it is a good example of how it works in the real world, that no matter how important you are, how famous you are, um, the law applies to everybody. The rule of law applies to everybody. And in her case, she got in trouble for um, insider trading. She got a tip on some stock and sold it uh, ahead of time before the market knew about it. And then when she was asked about it by investigators, she lied. Um, and it was that lie that was the the false statements charge. And um, I think it's important. Pe- you know, I know at the time there are many people who thought, "What's the big deal?" Um, you know, what's what's the harm here? It's harmless. She didn't mean you. And she's so beloved in all the other things that she does. What's the big deal? But I, I remember um, at the time, and the example I, I often use is the telling the truth is everything when it comes to the court system. And I think we've lived in such a world where truth has seemed not to matter anymore. And people are willing to say whatever suits their purpose in the moment. But in the court system, truth still matters. And until, um, unless we uh, are ready to give that up, then we need to safeguard uh, truth by enforcing these laws about perjury and false statements, because cases are all built on the testimony of others. And so we need to make sure that uh, truth is preserved, at least in the courts. That's such a good point, Barb. And I, I have to say, listening to Joyce reminded me of actually the favorite perjury trial that I had while I was still prosecuting organized crime, and we had the FBI had tracked two mob hitmen from Boston to California, where they were going to kill some labor um, leaders, and they got caught. Um, well, actually, before they got caught, the FBI broke into their hotel room and discovered a huge cache of weapons. And they were really worried that they would not be able to stop the murder. And so they left the room quite visibly searched. And so the hitman fled town and got picked up for a speeding ticket on the way to the airport. And then were brought in to us and they answered some questions with perjury. Um, And so ended up being indicted for perjury, not for the murder attempt, which is just sort of one of those things that you know, falls in your lap sometimes. You take what you can when you're dealing with organized crime, or I would say with the Trump administration. So that takes us back to our other point. And I I think at some point we should maybe link 
our first discussion about the evidence in January 6th and the perjury that we now are seeing in that connection. And we can talk about some of the examples of real perjury that would meet the qualifications for the laws that we've discussed. But for now, I think we'll stop with this information for our listeners about explanation of perjury. Well, the Supreme Court heard a really interesting First Amendment case earlier this week, and I was interested in hearing your thoughts about it, all of my sisters. Um, the case involved a high school football coach who was fired for praying on the 50-yard line after football games. Um, the facts are a bit disputed. His lawyer says that the coach engaged in private prayer by taking a knee on the 50-yard line and praying, and the school district's lawyer said that the coach uh, organized student participating prayer. He prayed loudly for all to hear. He was sometimes joined by the players because he wanted to model what he believed would make the players better people. And so he was fired only after defying repeated complaints from opposing teams and warnings from the school district. Um, so the case is a clash between three different rights protected by the First Amendment, the right to free speech, the free exercise of religion, and the prohibition on the establishment of religion by the government. Um, you know, I note that you see this all the time after an NFL game when some of the players on both teams will meet at midfield um, and they'll, they'll take a knee and they'll do a little group prayer. But, you know, that's different because the NFL is not a government actor, so the First Amendment doesn't apply there. But a public school, public high school, is very much a government actor. So with that uh, setting, Jill, um, can you just explain briefly what these three rights are that are involved here and how they clash, free speech, free exercise, and the establishment clause, or maybe the anti-establishment clause is a better way to describe it? It is. And let me say, as a preface to this, that I have a very strong point of view on the First Amendment. Um, the words under God were added to the, to the Pledge of Allegiance after I had learned it, after I was already old enough to say it in school. And to this day, I do not say under God. I pause when other people say it because I believe that is... When was that, Jill? Because it's I, before my time. When was that? I don't remember exactly like how old... Child? Oh, I was a child? Yeah, I was in grade school. It's it was in, Yeah, I was in grade right? school. I don't remember the exact okay. year, but I was old enough wow. to know that yeah. I didn't believe yeah. under God was... I mean, even at that young age, I don't think I yeah. necessarily yeah. affiliated it with the First Amendment, but I just felt mm -hmm. that it wasn't my religion to say under God, and I just wasn't going to yeah. do it. Separation of church and state. Exactly, right? yeah. exactly. So that's. I, I just want everyone to know that I have a very strong view on mm -hmm. that, and um, mm -hmm. so I, I feel strongly about how students might have been impacted by this coach. But back to the First Amendment. First Amendment says that it gives you a right to freely exercise your religion, to freely speak your mind, and prohibits the establishment of religion by the government. And you can see in this case how very clearly those three can overlap. And this is a very tricky uh, case of whose rights get involved first. Is it my right to practice my religion by praying after a game? Is it the student's rights 
to be free from the influence of a coach, particularly a coach or a teacher, but coaches have a very special relationship with the students, uh, to be free from the pressure that that brings on them to follow his method? Is it because he is in his job? And a lot of the argument at the Supreme Court was, well, exactly when was his job over? Was he part of his job after the game ended? Yeah. And, and and so it, it, wasn't that such nonsense? They say, well, what you know, as soon as the 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 la- the, the the game ends, when the clock hits zero, um, suddenly he's not at work anymore, and he's free to pray. I mean, you know, there's a lot that happens right after a game ends, right? You go to the locker room and gather. Eh. Yeah, surrounded yeah, by the, all those players in the mm. pictures, sure. And it was ridiculous because the evidence really showed that his job included yeah, making sure everyone was safely off the field, that the. There was a whole bunch of stuff that clearly his job did not end Mm -hmm. when the clock struck zero, uh, when the final game tally was in. Um, But so it is a conflict between the students' First Amendment rights, between the right of all of us to be free from the establishment of religion. And it's a fine line. The, The arguments also included, well, what about if a teacher has a Bible on their desk, their own personal Bible? What if they read it? When students aren't in the classroom, but they're on the job, obviously, they work from nine to three or whatever their hours are, and they're reading it. So there's a lot of very tricky questions here about not establishing a religion because this is a public school. If it was a private school, it might be different. If it was, obviously, as you said, if it's a, you know a commercial business like the NFL, that's a different story. But when it's a public high school, the establishment becomes very, very important. Um, so I also am opposed to under God being on our currency, by the way, just to throw in that. Um, so mm-hmm. that explains yeah. the, the three conflicting rights. The coach is saying, I have a free speech right and a right to practice my religion as I see fit. And the, the school is saying, you are establishing religion by doing that on the job, and you can't do that. And I think they're right. Yeah, Joyce, let me ask you, um, the law in this area is a little murky um, (laughs) because the court has allowed some prayer at some school events, and I wonder if you could help us understand the limits. Um, The court in these arguments uh, on Monday referred to the Lemon Test, but some justices have also noted that the Lemon Test has been abandoned. Can you tell us what the, the Lemon Test is and how the court thinks about where to draw these lines? You know, I think one of the things that members of the public sometimes think is that all of these Bill of Rights uh, protections are absolute. And they're not, because as as Jill just pointed out, sometimes one provision comes in tension with another provision. And so the court has to look at all parts of the Constitution to try to honor it. And as a result, it sometimes ends up coming up with these balancing tests or three-part tests or other kinds of things um, to think about how to look at these things and what can be reasonable restrictions on these rights. So how does it work in this area, if you can give us a quick and dirty little summary? So here it is, quick and dirty. I think um, (laughs) calling the law in this area murky is a polite Michigander term. Um, I can think of other equally suitable terms I might use, but since we're a family-rated, a PG podcast, I I won't use them, but the law is um, pretty screwed up. By the way, the lemon test, this is not Liz Lemon from 30 Rock, um, one of my personal heroes. This is actually a 1971 Supreme Court case, Lemon versus Kurtzman. 
And Lemon establishes a three-pronged test that the court uses to evaluate whether a law or a governmental activity violates the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment that Jill was talking about. The Establishment Clause really is, is the place where this notion that you have religious freedom, but there also shouldn't be one state-run religion and no religion should be elevated by government. It's where they clash and they meet and we decide who wins. Sadly, I think that we're about to live in an era where the right to establish your religion and practice it if you're a um, certain type of Christian is, is going to be predominant. But that said, the Lemon Test has three parts. Um, the court uses these, as I said, to decide whether or not the activity or the law violates the Establishment Clause. And so first, they'll consider the purpose of a law. The law has to have a secular legislative purpose. It can't be established um, in order to, for instance, promote a religion, it just has to have some sort of a legitimate non-religious purpose. Then there's the effect prong of the test. Uh, the principal or primary effect of the law or practice can't be to advance or to inhibit religion. It has to be neutral. And then there's an entanglement prong of the test. The action can't foster an excessive government entanglement with religion. And the court looks at these factors to decide what is uh, and what is not in violation of the Establishment Clause. And here's the murkiness that you referenced, Barb. It's not at all clear that the court will use Lemon to decide this case in front of it, the Coach case, because Lemon has come in for a lot of criticism. Most notoriously, it came in for criticism from Justice um, Scalia, who disparaged it in a 1993 concurring opinion. Here's what he said about Lemon. Like some ghoul in a late night horror movie that repeatedly sits up in its grave and shuffles abroad after being repeatedly killed and buried, Lemon stalks our Establishment Clause jurisprudence once again. Um, not quite as colorfully, but in the court's most recent decision in this area, American Legion versus American Humanist Association, both Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh were critical of the Lemon test. But strange bedfellows on the other side of the equation, Justice Alito, writing for the majority in American Legion, said he thought there might still be a little bit of life left in, in Lemon. And Justice Kagan, too, believes that it has some vitality. So hard to predict um, whether Lemon will be the law after Kennedy, the coach case, comes down. I think the question is more one of how the court is going to decide that this kind of prayer is okay not whether it will get there. After oral argument, it seems clear that the court will get there and say that the coach was entitled to do what he was doing. So I will be waiting with great excitement for the first case where a Muslim coach or a Jewish coach um, mm -hmm. or maybe a pagan or a Satanist one yeah. tries to do this and see how the court gets out of that. It, yeah. it really is increasingly clear. Yeah, isn't I think that's, yeah. I think that is so dead on, Joyce. I think that, you know, people f see this as just like, a, you know, part of the culture when you're praying at midfield and until just you, you wait till it's somebody who's a non-Christian religion and see mm. if it's different, because I think that will be the real the real test. Hey, Jill, I wanted to ask you, you know, back to your uh, in uh, under God is so interesting. Um, you know, to me, it seems so clear that um, when you have state action, like you're in a school or you're in a government building. It, it's separation of church and state. You can pray all you want. 
outside. Like I, I consider myself a devout Christian, but I don't bring it to the workplace because I work in a public institution. I didn't bring it when I worked for the federal government. I don't bring it when I work for a public university. Um, my prayer and my religion is something I focus on in my time because I don't want to um, use my authority in my position uh, to any way coerce students or others to think that they have to follow suit. Um, and so it seems so so easy, but. There is all this case law, as Joyce said, where the court has upheld the use of um, religious symbols. We have, uh, you know, invocations before graduation ceremonies and um, sessions of Congress and other kinds of things on our currency. It says, in God we trust. How does all that stuff comply with the First Amendment? Well, of course, as you can tell from my my particular perspective. <laughs> well, that, well how's that? let me ask you about it. How has the court found that compliance? It's sort of just as let it happen. The First it's, Amendment. I, I think it's just wrong. Um, and, and But I, I actually, I want to go back to something that you had asked Joyce about, the lemon test. And I think, I mean, obviously her definition is completely correct, the three-part test. But I, I think it might help our audience to hear, for example, how does that apply and what does it mean? And it's things like, if you say that the state is going to build uh, playgrounds in schools and the parochial school gets the same funding, it's a secular purpose to provide playgrounds. And so that meets the secular test. And the major effect of having a playground has nothing to do with advancing a religion or hindering a religion. And it's not excessive entanglement in religion. So that's the kind of thing that would pass the lemon test as opposed to something which was, we'll pay for the textbook of um, a catechism, for example, where it might be more of a, a difficult question. So yeah, the courts have allowed, obviously our currency all says, uh, you know, in God we trust and, um, Every time I look at it, I go, mm, not not for me. Um, I'm not so adamant that, for example, I would take an oath uh, and you know affirm that I would tell the truth. Um, but I just I don't see any good argument that's been made that justifies allowing some of the things that we have allowed, uh, including creches and um, even a menorah. Uh, which would represent my religion, those things should not be allowed as at public expense or in public property. Yeah, I have to say I agree with you. You know, what, what I recall about the cases in this area, just having studied it in law school in a First Amendment course, that I found fascinating. But what I remember is when it comes to things like this on the money and invocations, it goes back to tradition. Well, we've always done it that way. We have this long, we're built yeah. on this Christian Judeo yeah. tradition, and so we can do that. But, you know, Slavery was a tradition, and I think we all recognize that there's no place for that in our country. And so, I don't know. It's always uh, it's always bothered me too. But nonetheless, um, in an effort to uh, find a way for these three competing rights to coexist within our First Amendment, the court has to find some middle ground, and so there has to be some compromise. So we'll stay tuned. And you know, um, I can't help but wonder what the um, uh, the cussing cheerleader thinks about the coach who prayed at midfield. <laughs> <laughs> well played, Barb. <laughs>
Now it's time for our favorite part of the show, which is where we answer your questions. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw@politicon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your questions during the show, keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week where we'll answer as many of your questions as we can. And this week, we have had some really super terrific questions. Some of them are stumpers. Let's now turn to those questions. Our first question comes from Karen. And Barb, I want you to answer Karen and tell how can one judge make a ruling that affects all flights? Can another judge just rule the opposite or is it first come, first serve? Yeah, really great question. So we have an order out of uh, a, a district court judge in Florida who issued a nationwide injunction regarding masking in public transportation. And so that injunction is out there. And Yes, another court could hear this if they wanted to that is not um, within that same jurisdiction because they're, they're, they're only co-equal courts. And so if uh, this happened during the Trump uh, travel ban, there were cases out of like Maryland and New York and other kinds of places that were issuing uh, competing orders. And so um, you could end up with this patchwork of different kinds of orders going on. And, and that's why it's important to have those cases work their way up. Um, I think at some point the uh, you know TSA has to decide how it's going to respond to these different kinds of rules. Um, the organization that put the rule out is the CDC. And so um, if they got a better ruling, say, out of uh, a district court in New York that said, no, you can go on ahead, um, then that judge's rule in New York, I think, would be confined solely to her jurisdiction. Do you guys disagree? I mean, when you have these nationwide injunctions, you know, some other judge could come along and trump it, don't you think? I think so. And then you get a circuit split yeah. that has to yeah. go up to the Supreme Court, yes. right? I mean, that's how that often works. Mm -hmm. I think you are absolutely yeah. right. But I, I think in this instance, you know, um, they've decided to sort of fight the battle. TSA has um, removed the requirement for the, for the meantime, and that's going to stay in effect until the case works its way up in the courts. But I think you could theoretically have this battle where you have this patchwork of different opinions throughout the country. And our next question comes from Peg. She asks, when someone is found in contempt of court and is fined a daily amount, what penalty, if any, occurs if there is a refusal to pay the fine? Is there a time limit for how long the fine can be continuously paid before another penalty is assessed? That's a great question, Peg, and I'm going to answer it by saying I'm assuming you're talking about the $10,000 a day fine that has been imposed on Donald Trump for not turning over documents and not responding to, as he should have, to a court order. And the answer is, there's no time limit until he complies. He can stop it by paying um, the fine. He can, st uh, not by paying the fine, but by turning over the requested information. And the judge could triple the fine. He could do other things. And he also could jail Donald Trump for refusing to comply with the court order. That is a penalty that is allowed. So that was a great question. Thank you for that. And our last question is definitely for Joyce. And it comes from at Princess Jaguar. What type of yarn would you all suggest for a soft, chunky blanket? Well, it's so nice to get to end the podcast on a note that doesn't involve the end of democracy as we know it. 
Um, so thank you, Princess Jaguar, for the lighthearted moment. Um, I have strong feelings about yarn, and so I'll just say life is too short to knit with cheap yarn. Um, for large blankets, I really like an obscure blend called Blue-Faced Leicester, which you'll find spun up in chunky yarn and offered by a lot of independent dyers on Etsy or other places. And it makes just a lovely yarn that's as soft as um, cashmere, really, but that's very economical. It's, it's far less expensive than cashmere and makes a great blanket. I suppose um, at some point, you know, I'm just going to have to schedule a Zoom and let people come to me with their knitting and yarn questions so that we can have fun geeking out about important topics like what kind of knitting needles we like and how to block a sweater when you're done. Um, because neither Jill nor Barb and, and not really even Kim, the fabric artist among us, is a knitter. But I'm eternally hopeful and I'll I keep do needle point on. I knit my counts. brow a lot. <laughs> you do knit your brow a lot. I, I'm going to agree with you there. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Barb McQuaid, Joyce Vance, and me, Jill Wine Banks. Kim will be back with us next week. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. Go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our pale blue t-shirt and please support this week's sponsors, HelloFresh, Fast Growing Trees, Osea Malibu, Apostrophe, and Grove. You can find their links in the show notes Please support them as they really make this show possible. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag SistersInLaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review because it really helps others to find the show. See you next week with another episode, hashtag SistersInLaw. Joyce, is your Siri possessed? It seems like she doesn't stop talking. I don't know what her deal is. I worry that it's maybe the Apple algorithm and, and maybe they're listening in on, on hashtag sisters-in-law. Maybe they just want to get a first crack at the episode. <laughs> hey, Siri, are you possessed? Hmm. I don't have an answer for that. Is there something else I can help with? Yeah, definitely possessed. I'm not sure I understand. <laughs>